Welcome to the New Books Network. And I said, Father, it's too late now. And he says, no, it isn't, because God is outside of time. And a lot of people don't understand me when I explain this. They, they call me heretical because they say, you can't get somebody out of hell. No, I'm not claiming, this priest was not claiming you could get somebody out of hell. What he said was, go to the diary of St. Faustina. And I'm like, Saint who? <laughs> I, never, I, I never heard of this Faustina. So my life was changing at the, by the very minute on that day, and I didn't even know it. Why does God work through us such broken tools? And why does he hear our prayers of intercession? And why does he invite us to swim in the ocean of his mercy? Father Chris Aller tells us on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Udinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought a lot about the big questions, what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. And I hope this conversation, this back and forth, this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a great time doing it. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Father Chris Aller. Father Chris is the Provincial Superior of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of Mercy Province of the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception in the United States and Argentina. He wrote and produced the popular Divine Mercy 101 and Explaining the Faith DVD series. He's the best-selling author of After Suicide, There's Hopes for Them and for You, as well as Understanding Divine Mercy. And he's the host of the EWTN show Living Divine Mercy, which you can watch on Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome, Father Chris. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, We appreciate the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, do you have a joke you'd like to share to get us started? Well, actually, I had a joke played on me. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I, um, I was teaching my seventh grade catechism class in North Carolina, and I had a couple of witty students, and one of the students got me really well. He said, uh, he said, Father, did you see the newest news reports that they actually now have thousands of year old documented proof that Adam and Eve existed, and they have proof from it in some writings. I said, no, I, I didn't hear this. <laughs> and he was so serious and he was so uh, stern and he he was so believable. And I said, well, what is this? He said, well, they have now found written documentation that there actually was a uh, written uh, uh, event with, with, with uh, Adam and his sons, Cain and Abel. I'm like, okay. He said, yeah, apparently they were walking outside of the garden after the Lord had evicted them from the garden and they were going to work. Now, all of a sudden I started to get a little fishy. Okay, And he said, mm-hmm. well, they were going to work uh, because they were banished from the garden. And as they were passing by the Garden of Eden, Abel looked in there and he said, Dad, he said, uh, is that really the garden? And he said, yes, son. He said, uh, we really used to live there? <laughs> and he said, yes, son, we did. And he said, dad, look at it. It's it's paradise. Uh, uh, dad, what the heck happened? He said, dad, we got evicted. He said, we got <laughs> thrown out. He said, yeah. So what happened? And, and Adam said, son, your mother ate us out of house and home. <laughs> <laughs> so then I knew I was joked by a seventh grader. But uh, yeah, mother, the mother definitely Eve did eat them out of house and home. So. Yeah, the, the seventh grade. That's a precocious kid you got there. Uh, yeah, in that class. good stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Father Chris, uh, how did you become a Marian father? And 
and who are the Marian fathers of the Immaculate Conception? Yeah, it was it, totally by the grace of God. Um, I came back to the faith. I've always been a Catholic. I was born Catholic, uh, cradle Catholic, but I wasn't a good Catholic. Um, you know, I couldn't understand why uh, the church taught what it did on abortion. I didn't understand, mm. you know, if if my girlfriend and I are attracted to each other and everybody else is, you know, being this way, why I can't be. I, I really wasn't a good Catholic, uh, not because I was trying to defy church teaching. It was just I, I didn't really see the depth or the importance of it. And um, after the suicide, ironically, of my grandmother um, in 1993, I'm in college and my life changed because it all of a sudden brought me to the face of real the reality of mortality. And um, after my grandma took her life in 1993, we were under the impression that in fact, we never even mentioned her name. We never talked about her after for the next 10 years because we were under the belief as a Catholic family that she was in hell and that she was condemned and there was nothing we could do about it. Well, after I learned that that's not church teaching and I learned that God's mercy is greater than any sin, uh, it changed my life. So, you know, you mean to tell me that God's mercy is greater than the sins I committed with my girlfriend. You mean to tell me God's mercy is greater than the suicide that my grandmother committed? Um, wow. You know, I was so blown away that what appealed to me was the mercy of God. I think, to be honest, I came into it with the hope that mercy eliminated justice. <laughs> uh, but I have learned mercy does not eliminate justice. Mercy is God's answer to justice if we turn to it and we are truly sorry. Well, anyway, um, <clears throat> as I started to, my life started to change and I started coming back to our faith, I couldn't believe you had mentioned that um, you guys focus on on uh, apologetics and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. And that's kind of my realm too. So I felt as I dug harder and deeper into what our Catholic church teaches, maybe in a, in a, subconscious kind of way, I was looking to disprove the Catholic faith. Uh, but I tell you, the deeper I dug, the more the pieces fit together like a puzzle. And um, fitting the pieces together like a puzzle is amazing. And um, the faith became alive. It became the truth. And it became a truth that I couldn't deny. And um, all of a sudden, I started watching EWTN. And when EWTN became a big part of my life, I discovered Divine Mercy Sunday. And on Divine Mercy Sunday was the day of the year that our entire past can be wiped away. And seeing that I definitely had a past, I was very intrigued that it could all be wiped away. And so I discovered Divine Mercy Sunday through WTN. The reason is because the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception were the ones entrusted by the church to... Um, be the caretakers of divine mercy. So once I found that out, I started looking at this order and the rest is history because I came here um, never expecting to really have what happened over the last several years. But now I'm the provincial superior of the um, entire province and it's a daunting but um, uh, humbling task. And uh, 
I came here really because of that Divine Mercy, Divine Mercy Sunday and what the St. Faustina, once I learned who St. Faustina, who she was, I was hooked. And your name sounds Polish, Chris. Are you a Polish background? I am. I was born in Poland and I moved here to California as a small child. So I learned English in elementary school and wow. it's become my main language now. But, you know, as I was reading the diary of St. Faustina, I could have it open in English on one side and open in Polish wow. on the other side. Um, well, you, you you could thank our father Kaz for that because he's one of the translators that put it from the Polish into the English. So mm -hmm. uh, this community, the Marian fathers are the ones entrusted with that message of Faustina. So I would imagine it struck you pretty, pretty good, huh? Very much, very much. And I first learned about her through you. Uh, you have a YouTube video. You have a number of them, but one of them was yes. particularly striking to me that I listened to first. And then I listened to Father Joe Roche go through the awesome. diary in a year. And then um, I'm currently reading it uh, with in a little book club that really my mother, my father and my brother, we just get together on Wednesdays <laughs> and we and we talk it over. That's and great. She, she's an infinitely interesting um, person. Um, but I, before we leave this topic, it wasn't really on the things I intended to ask you, but you wrote the book after suicide, there's hope for them and for you. And given your grandmother's um, suicide in 1993, how do you understand what's the, what's your thesis there? How do you understand it? To well, I, I went, I, yeah, I, I went from being taught and learning, or at least it was kind of understood that if a soul takes their own life. Um, they are lost because there's no time to repent. And once I went to North Carolina and I started to come back to my faith, it was a life-changing meeting with a particular priest in North Carolina that um, I was doing a general confession. And during that general confession, I came across, I was going year by year, basically through my life from the very beginning and working my way through. And when I got to the year 1993, I had mentioned that my grandma had taken her life and and it, it was hard on me because at the time I didn't even pray for her. I was more worried about the reputation of our family. I wasn't going to church. Um, all I was worried about was that, you know, um, this didn't reflect negatively on our family name. And anyway, I felt then when I came back to the church 10 years later that I felt guilty that I hadn't prayed for her but now it was too late and you know, she'd already died. She's been judged. She's probably in hell. And I just, I confessed to that priest that this really bothered me. And he looks at me and he said, well, go home tonight and pray the chaplet of divine mercy for the salvation of your grandmother's soul. And I'm like, father, you didn't hear me. You must have not heard me because she died 10 years ago. And he said, no, um, go home tonight and pray the chaplet for the salvation of your grandmother. And again, I'm an engineer, so I was stubborn and <laughs> trying to logically explain to him that he's wrong and that, you know, she died 10 years ago. She's been judged and, you know, we can't do anything now. Maybe if she's in purgatory. I could say a few prayers and help her with a little time out of purgatory, but he kept insisting that I pray this chaplet. I didn't know what this chaplet was. I This was 2003. This was 10 years after the um, uh, death of my grandmother. And I said, Father, it's too late now. And he says, no, it isn't because God is outside of time. 
And a lot of people don't understand me when I explain this. They they call me heretical because they say, you can't get somebody out of hell. No, I'm not claiming, this priest was not claiming you could get somebody out of hell. What he said was, go to the diary of St. Faustina. And I'm like, St. who? <laughs> I never... <laughs> I, yeah. I never heard of this Faustina. So my life was changing at the by the very minute on that day, and I didn't even know it. And he said, this St. Faustina talked about death, and Jesus came to her. And in paragraph 1486, he says he comes to the soul three times at the moment of death and gives the soul the time to repent. And I said, well, she unfortunately, not to be graphic, but she shot herself. There's no time to repent. And he said, wait a minute. The time it takes a bullet to travel three inches is an infinite amount of time for God. So in the time that that bullet, she pulled the trigger to the time she dies is a split instantaneous second to us. But to God, it's an infinite eternity it's it's it, you know god can build a universe in a in in the time it takes a bullet to travel three inches so he said um you know god can come to her soul at that time and she still will have a chance to repent i i was floored by this and then he showed me paragraph 1698 of the diary that basically said souls at the last moment they don't, they're not responsive. They, they look like they're lost. They look like they're, they're done. They're dead. They're dying. And Jesus said to her, it's not so. At that moment, I'm coming to the soul and I'm giving them the opportunity to accept me. And I, all I could think about was even my grandma, really? You know, I, I asked this priest, even my grandma He's like, especially your grandma, because the souls that are in most need of God's mercy are those the most broken, the most miserable. And so he could come to her, but the problem is if she not had been practicing her faith, not going to the sacraments, it's harder for her to recognize Jesus when he comes. So you need to pray for her. I said, but again, Father, her, my prayers are meaningless now. He said, listen, God is outside of time. There's no past for God. There's no future for God. To God, everything is one big eternal present moment. So he basically said, he pointed to a ruler and he, he, he pointed to one end and said, if this is Adam and Eve, and then he pointed to the other end of the ruler and said, and then this is the end of the world. And every little line in between is a, you know, a century. Um, God sees it all instantaneously. It, your grandma did not commit suicide 10 years ago to God. It's all present at one moment. Even the future events to us are present at one moment to God. I, I was completely blown away by this. And I said, I'm not getting this. He said, listen, God knew 20 years ago, or I'm sorry, at that time it was 10 years ago, God knew 10 years ago that you'd be here tonight and that you're going to pray this chaplet. God knew when the moment your grandma died or was going to die, that you would be here 10 years from now 
and you're going to pray that chapa. And God, his mercy is so great. He will apply those graces from your prayer of that divine mercy chaplet back to your grandmother at the moment of her judgment, not after she's in hell, but at that moment of judgment to help her with the grace to say yes to him and to repent because of your chaplet of divine mercy. And I'm like, what is this chaplet of divine mercy? I, I've never heard of it. And he said, I'll show you in a minute. But he said, let me tell you a story. He said, Padre Pio um, is documented that with the Franciscans that he once went to his doctor to um, receive uh, a medical exam or physical. And during the physical, the doctor noticed Padre Pio was praying. And the doctor said to Padre Pio, what are you praying for? Just curious, just making small talk. And he said, the conversion and happy death of my grandfather. And the doctor said to Padre Pio, well, I knew your grandfather. He died over 20 years ago. And Padre Pio said, I know, but God knew 20 years ago that I'd be here tonight and I would be praying for him and God will apply those graces back to my grandfather at that moment to have a happy death and accept him. And I, I was so blown away that I said, Father, you mean to tell me we have a God so loving, so merciful that he'll take a knucklehead like me that didn't even pray <laughs> for his grandma 10 years ago, that he'll allow me to do a prayer now, after the fact, 10 years after, and he'll give her graces from that? And he said, absolutely. He said, God, there is, again, he's outside of time. Time was created for us. It does not mean we can change the past. It does not mean that. What it means is that God can take those graces back in time to help a soul that's in need. I mean, I can't go back and pray that I was never born. I, you know, I, I, it, it, God's will has already been done. I can't change God's will. God's will is that I was born. Or I can't go back and pray that we um, World War II never happened. I, I can't go back and pray for that because God's will has already been realized. What I can do is pray for those soldiers on D-Day that maybe weren't ready to meet our Lord. I can pray that when they die, I can't change that they die, but I could pray that they would be given grace to say yes to God at the moment of their death because that is outside of history that God can still accept because he is outside of time. And so I kept asking him about this chaplet. So he hands me a prayer card and on the back of it is how to pray the chaplet of divine mercy. I'd never heard of it. And that night I ended up praying the chaplet and I really felt something happened. I felt there was a huge something happening. And I believe that it was the grace that my grandma got to, to enter heaven to not because we save them, but God's grace is given through us 
to help intercede. Mm-hmm. And the funny part was on the back of that prayer card on how to pray the chaplet, at the very bottom said, printed at the Association of Marian Helpers hmm. at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> and I always laugh when I do my talks, guess now, who is the director of the Association of Marian Helpers in Stockbridge? I am. Yes. So you could see God's hand was in all of that. That's marvelous. Do you have a sense of why God chooses to work through intercession and through us? You know, God could wave his hand and every everything could be this way or that way. And yet over and over and over again, we, you know, in the in the creed, we say uh, we believe in the, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Why do we pray for the live? Why do we pray for the dead? Why do the saints pray for us? Why do we ask their help? Why does um, Our Lady intercede for us? Uh, how, why it's do you think the, God does this? It's the same way God chose twelve apostles to help him. You know, Jesus didn't need twelve apostles. He didn't need any help. He could have bilocated or quad, pinningly <laughs> uh, uh, bilocated or uh, located to be able to spread the message. He could appear to each person personally. He chooses to work through others. This goes back to the Old Testament with God through Moses. You know, God could have went to the people, but he chooses to work through his tools. And they're usually broken tools. Mm-hmm. And it gives him more glory. My favorite passage in the Bible outside of the, you know, the resurrection narratives and the passion and is the four men and the paralytic. I absolutely love that passage because it's the same with my grandma. Even if my grandma didn't have the strongest faith, my faith can help supply. That's why we need Mary, because we may not have trust fully in God, but Mary does. Mm-hmm. So she helps us in our lack. But when you look at the 12 apostles, God didn't need them. Jesus didn't need them, but he used them. It's the same with the four men in intercessory prayer. When they lowered the paralytic on the mat, down to the feet of Jesus, Jesus didn't look at the paralytic and say, your faith has healed you. He looked up at the four men and said, their faith has healed this man. And that's the power of intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is biblical. Um, I mean, it's throughout the Bible, Mary at Cana and, and the four men and the paralytic. But even people say, well, nowhere does it say to pray for the dead. Well, the book of Maccabees mm-hmm. is in the original canon. You know, the canon, the Bible as we have it today was established by the Catholic Church. The books that went into the Bible, there were thousands of, of other scriptures written in the first several centuries of the church. Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas. Those are apocryphal, which means they, they have some value, but the church determined the only four inspired Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Every Catholic or Christian Bible has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Who determined that those were the only four inspired books? The Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church determined the canon of the Bible. Now, non-Catholics will say, oh, well, you added books to the Bible. You have Wisdom and Sirach and Tobit and Maccabees. No, no. We didn't add the books to the Bible. Martin Luther took them out. <laughs> and, and, and those books were in the canon all the way up to the 16th century. Martin Luther took them out. 
And one mm -hmm. of those books is Maccabees, first and second Maccabees. And in it, it says it is a wholesome and pious practice to pray for the dead. Says it point blank. Mm -hmm. And so when anybody says it's not in the Bible, actually it was in the Bible. Martin Luther took it out of the Bible. And so twice a week, well, many times a week, as we pray our, our rosary, there are mysteries about Mary and her intercession. What is the special role Mary has for us, our mediatrix, our, you know, as, mm -hmm. as Pope Francis often says, like, I, I am your mother, I'm always with you. Yeah, what was Jesus's last act here on earth was yeah. giving his mother, which also proves he didn't have brother, biological brothers and sisters, because if Jesus had any brothers, he would have had to give and marry to them on the cross. Instead, he gave him John. And we know John was not Jesus's biological brother. That means that Jesus was her to us for a purpose. He doesn't just do it. He, he This is the last thing he did on earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, do we not find that important? The last thing that Jesus does on earth is not important. Um, <laughs> and Mary's role um, you know, is, is it, it really, I call her God's loophole to his own justice. Hmm. Um, you know, God is mercy, but he's also justice. And in his mercy, he created Mary to be our intercessor. And she's only mercy. Mary is not justice. God, uh, is mercy and justice, but Mary is not. It doesn't mean that she's better than God or that the mercy comes from her. The mercy comes from God, but she's perfectly aligned with God's will and she can therefore intercede and God will help us. And, and that's the way it's always been. At Cana, Jesus was not going to act. And um, and then Mary said, you know, you're out of wine and, and he could see she was troubled and he acted. So how could we not think intercessory prayer is not important? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mary is a gift to us um, and, uh, and she plays an important role as mother. So, um, you know, John gave her to us on the cross as mother, behold your mother. And that means that's a euphemism or take her into your heart, take her into your home. Yeah. Would you describe your relationship with, with our lady or maybe those of your brother priests? Um, do you, do you feel a, you can hear her or you, you can feel her hand on your shoulder? You know, you said you felt um, comfort when you were praying the chaplet for your for your grandmother. I've I've had one time, one time in my life when I was praying in the middle of the night, I could hear a woman's voice saying my name quite audibly. But that's once in my life, and I just wonder if um, you you guys who are so close to Our Lady in your daily, like all day long, um, do you guys have uh, examples of that, or you, do you talk about that at the? Um, at the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate yeah, Conception. Yeah, we are the first men's community in the history of the world to bear the title Immaculate Conception. Hmm. We were also the first men's community ever created in Poland. And um, so I think it's not coincidental that when Jesus told St. Faustina, a spark would come from Poland to prepare the world for his final coming. That spark is St. Faustina, Divine Mercy, John Paul II, and I believe the Marian Fathers. And um, because we were the ones who spread it around the world. One of our Marian priests from Poland brought it to America. And then from there, it's it's blossomed. It's It's gone all over the world. And um, so we're, our relationship with Mary is based on 
the 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 immaculate conception and i i got all talks out there that explain why the immaculate conception is dogmatic and and even scriptural it's it's every it's everything of our our identity and um the beautiful gift of mary as mother you know satan feared mary more than god hmm. and people get angry when you say that but it makes perfect sense because Satan's not stupid, he's an intelligent creature. He can halfway understand getting whipped up on by God. You know, he's God. Um, and I'm, you know, if he beats me, you know, he beats everybody. But to lose to a 15-year-old Jewish girl, <laughs> that's that's more than his pride can handle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he could take on God, lose, and save face. But you take on Mary and lose... All of a sudden, you're humbled now. You yeah. and his pride wouldn't allow that because his pride um, could not accept losing to a 15 year old Jewish girl. Yeah, and is there a tradition that she remains 15 in the Zeffirelli movie? She's like the actress clearly is not aged over the course of 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 her life, and I was wondering if that's a, if that's just apocryphal. Also, would that be Jesus of Nazareth uh, with uh, that's exactly Olivia right. Hussey? Yeah. Yeah, I always liked her. I thought she played a beautiful Mary. Yeah. Um, no, there's no doctrinal teaching that Mary didn't age. In fact, there's not even doctrinal teaching that she she died or not. Um, in the East, we have the tradition of the Dormition that, you know, she fell asleep, so to speak. That doesn't change whether she died on this earth or not. Doesn't change the fact of who she was. We Catholics believe that she was, you know, assumed body and soul into heaven. And the catechism says when her earthly time was done, when her time on earth was over, she was assumed into mm -hmm. heaven. So mm -hmm. assumption. And I find that interesting because um, the assumption um, doesn't state that she was living or dead. Yeah. And, and that's okay because it doesn't matter. It doesn't change our faith. Uh, but I personally believe that, you know, she didn't die. But even if you do believe it, doesn't matter. She was assumed body and soul into heaven um, without stain. Yeah. And presumably, John, who was the beloved apostle, was the witness to this and passed it on. But it has this come down to us as a as a part of the magisterium, but it's obviously not in, in the Bible. So this is something we know because because of our oral tradition and, and so on. Well, the sacred tradition is just as powerful as the other legs of the stool of our faith. We come from the Jews, and the Jews had three legs to their faith stool. Scripture, magisterium, and sacred tradition. To the Jews, their scripture was the Torah. Their magisterium was the teaching authority of Moses. And their sacred tradition was the stories that persevered throughout the centuries of them living in the desert playing the uh, slavery from Egypt. Um, and so we have to understand that those three legs disappeared in the Protestant tradition, but they were there in the Jewish and they are there with the Catholic. You know, we have Bible, but it does not say sola scriptura. We don't believe in Bible alone. Because what does the Bible say about nuclear war? Yeah. What does the Bible say about artificial intelligence? which is becoming quickly the most important um, area of, of focus in any 
you know, anything that we can imagine technology wise, bioethics, but there's nothing in the Bible mm -hmm. about artificial intelligence. Um, you know, what does the Bible say about contraception? It doesn't. That doesn't mean it's not important. You know, uh, the Bible does mention murder, but doesn't come right out and say you can't perform abortions. Um, does that mean it's not important? Does that mean that it's not true? Just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's not true. Um, like I said, nuclear war is not in the Bible, but that's a true reality. You know, we have to, we think of it. So yeah, I kind of look at it that way that the Bible itself says not everything's in the Bible. Yeah. But that, that that's okay because what we're missing is in sacred tradition. Um, the sacred tradition of the church is that these things happened. And the Bible says if, if everything were to be written down that Jesus said and did, it, it, all the books in the world could not contain it. So does that mean that's not important or Jesus didn't do it? No, it is important. Jesus did do it. Um, and so we can't just think because it's not written that it's not important mm -hmm. or that it's not true. Do um when when sister when Saint Faustina prays for for souls, she often incurs suffering, right? For her, it's very important. The more she suffers, the more merit there is, the more grace there is. Do you think that's right? That if I spend, you know, let's say we talk about the soldiers of D-Day, if I pray for 30 seconds for the soldiers of D-Day, or should I really try to, you know, fast for them? Or is the amount of effort or suffering that I invest? carry more value in that kind of um, almost quid pro quo kind of way, which to me doesn't feel correct, but I, I get that from her. What, what do you think about that? Well, St. Faustina said that Jesus told her that it was her prayers that got him through his agony in the garden. Right there's the proof to the thesis yeah. that prayers even now are important because how in the world did St. Faustina's prayers help Jesus in the garden when he lived 1,900 years before her? She died 1,900 years after Jesus. Why and how could her prayers be effective? Mm -hmm. And he said, your prayers got me through the garden. Got me through, the, I mean, the uh, agony in the garden or the my passion. Why? It has to be, again, because God is outside of time because he saw all of that during his passion. But he also saw this little nun praying for him. So just think, he sees all these sins. You know, he's in this passion. He sees the sins of Hitler. He sees the sins of Stalin. He sees the sins of the priests. He's really got to be disgruntled. Now, all of a sudden, in the same time, he sees the prayers of St. Faustina making the reparation, making the um, penance and the reparation for the sins of mankind, all of a sudden, it makes perfect sense because, again, God is outside of time. And so um, we have to remember that, that we can't, again, change history, but we can, we can help those who are facing uh, our Lord at that time. And um, to me, a fascinating concept. We talk a lot about this online. You can find it on our, our YouTube channel. But our, our focus um, 
has to be that God gave us a lot of abilities. And that includes praying for those in need. You might be the only prayer someone gets. That's why I, when I go through a cemetery, I randomly stop at just one tombstone. <laughs> I have no idea who it is. Yeah. But I trust that God sometimes will pick that soul that most needs prayers because I happen to be walking through. So um, it, it, to me, it's a very important element of our faith that few people understand. Yeah, that's that's a great mystery too. And one of the things that I find hard about her diary uh, as a you know pretty cosmopolitan 21st century person is how much she emphasizes her own humility. It's almost ironic how much, I don't want to say pride, but how, how much she cares about being the most humble of all people and how much uh, Jesus affirms her in that. And to me, it makes perfect sense if Jesus is talking to all of us and she's just standing in, look, you too can have this relationship with our Lord. He's waiting for you just as well, rather than she, this individual woman is, is such so special, but rather she is a stand-in for all of us. Um, I know that before she became canonized under, under St. John Paul II, that there might have been some resistance in the Vatican because she emphasized her own role so much. Um, how did, how did uh, John Paul II see her? How do you see her? How do you understand the importance of humility in, in, that, in that text? Well, why it is true that the Vatican had a concern and even went so far as to ban the diary in 1959 to 1978, so 19 years, is because of a self-focus. This is true, but it's not because it was true. Is there was a mistranslation. Hmm. There was a huge mistranslation from this Italian nun who claimed she knew Polish. And so they entrusted her to translate the diary from Polish into Italian, and it was a mess. And she at one point said, I am the divine mercy. Well, if I'm at the Vatican and I come across some supposed saint that says, I am divine mercy, I'm going to ban it too, because only Jesus is the divine mercy. No, nobody else. And... um so it was banned, but it was only banned because of a faulty translation. Once they got the translation clarified and cleaned up, all there are no bans. It was only done because there was a misunderstanding of what her writing said. And once that was clarified and once the, the, the translation was rectified, everything was lifted. And so... There, even though they, they banned it because they said there was a focus on herself because she said, I am the divine mercy. It's not what she said. Hmm. So we had to keep that in mind. Okay. Um, and would you like to tell us a bit about, about her life? For me, it's almost a miracle how beautifully the thing is written because this is a very simple country girl who became a nun quite young. There's a, there's a passage where she visits her family, I think in 1935, it's the middle of nowhere. The kids, you know, the kids, they're not all well provided for because there's no resources. And you, and you get a feeling of how rural Poland a hundred years ago, it wasn't like Poland today. It wasn't like some, a place in the West. And how did this very simple, very humble person write this amazing diary? And who is she? And it, it proves the supernatural nature of it because she only had a couple years of formal schooling and a couple years of formal education. 
she was not capable of writing something with such in-depth spiritual um of a spiritual nature without it being a supernatural grace given to her to be able to 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 do that and um you know with only three years or two or three years of education, she couldn't even really write. And so when people read her writings, they're like, this is beyond what a human could do, let alone a third grade educated human. And so that's purely the grace of God. That was purely the Holy Spirit that was dictating her. And that's why Jesus called her the apostle of divine mercy because, or the secretary also, the secretary hmm. of divine mercy, because it was only then that she started to... Um, um, you know, she got these things done. And, and when you read it, you realize that no mere mortal could write that depth. She, she had to have divine uh, assistance. And when she was canonized, is there a, a, a litany of miracles that are performed by people who appealed to her for help? For, for... Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of um, leftover testimonies, but each canonization, beatification has a miracle. And, um, one of her miracles was Maureen Diagon, who lives not far from here at our shrine, where, you know, she was cured of terminal cancer, like a cancer-like type of disease. And um, so that we follow this pattern of, of um, approved miracles. But yeah, you needed, uh, you needed some approved miracles for the beatification and canonization. And hers are, are quite amazing. So uh, Marie uh, Diagon was cured of an incurable disease uh, that um, now she's, I mean, she's still got challenges, but for the most part, it made her a different person. The miracle. Yeah. You said Divine Mercy Sunday uh, and how that is a day where the slate can be cleaned. Tell us a bit about that. And also, why would God choose a particular day? Why make different rules? Why make different conditions? Uh what do you think? And it's it's not a rule. It's extra credit of grace. Extra credit of grace. And Jesus said that it had to be on the eighth day. Why the eighth day? Because the eighth day completes what we call an octave. In the Jewish tradition, when a feast was so big that it couldn't be celebrated in one day, it would be celebrated over eight days. And they would call it an octave. The biggest octave we have in the church is Easter octave. And that starts on Easter Sunday. So you have the Easter octave beginning on Easter Sunday, day one, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Divine Mercy Sunday, the eighth day. And the reason is because the number eight to the Jews represented eternity. The number seven represented this life. And so God wanted something on the eighth day to represent eternity. Why? Because on that day is when he comes for us as his bride. Hmm. Jesus comes for us. We're the bride. He's the groom. And when he comes for us, he wants to take us home to the wedding feast, the wedding feast of the lamb. And however, some people um, are not ready. We're not purified, uh, not just a sin, which is forgiven in the confessional, but most likely we still have the punishment due to sin that remains even after we've been forgiven. Like people don't grasp this. But if I go into the confessional and I confess alcoholism and pornography and I'm addicted to it, which I'm not, thank God, but if I was and I confess it, I'm truly sorry. I don't want the sin. I'm, 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 I'm 
uh, I'm confessing it. I, I, I absolutely don't want it. And I go into the confessional, but I'm truly sorry. I am forgiven. But the second I walk out, all I can think about is alcohol and pornography. I, it gets to the point where I steal at work because I need more, more fix. Um, I could still be addicted to alcohol, wanting more liquor and, and more pornography. I want to see more. I've been forgiven of my sins, but I'm still attached. I'm still addicted. Am I ready for heaven? No, you're not ready for heaven. You got to be detached from that. Purgatory is not for the forgiveness of sins. I've yet to meet a Protestant in the thousands I've met in my life that has understood that doctrine. They keep saying that the Catholic Church claims that Jesus' work was not done on the cross because you need purgatory to be forgiven of sins. Purgatory is not for the forgiveness of sins. It is for the detachment from the sins already forgiven. I could be forgiven of pornography and, 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 and uh, 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 alcohol, but I'm still attached to it. I still want it. I still think of it more than God. I still put it ahead of God. I'm not ready for heaven. Only when I detach from it am I ready for heaven. And praise be to God that there is a purgatory. Because without it, none of us would get to heaven. So it's on this eighth day that Jesus comes from the bride for the bride, but we might have a stain on our soul. The stain on our soul, what is our soul? Our wedding garment. And the stain is either sin itself or the result of forgiven sin, which is you still have attachments, you still have brokenness. So we might have some punishment remaining. And that's not, I hate the word punishment. I like loving discipline. And so it's kind of like the boy, I always use this example, the boy that plays baseball in the yard, his dad says, don't play baseball. The kid's friends come over, they talk him into it. Sure enough, they break the window. Dad comes home, he sees the broken window. He said, son, did I not tell you to play baseball in the yard? Yes, dad. Well, you broke the window. Yes, dad. I told you not to do it. Yes, dad. I'm sorry. Is the father required to forgive him? Yes. But does the dad just say, okay, you can go back outside and play now. Have a good time. Mm -hmm. No, the dad says, you're grounded for two weeks and you're going to pay for this out of your allowance. Mm -hmm. He forgave him. Jesus forgave us our sins on the cross. As long as we go to confession to collect that grace. Mm -hmm. But Jesus never said, there's no consequences to your sins. Show me in the Bible where it says, once Jesus forgives you outside the confessional, you no longer have any consequences for your sins. Mm -hmm. Paul says, nobody, no blasphemer, no liar, no adulterer, they're gonna, no alcoholic, they're not going to enter the kingdom of God. And so thank God that we're cleaned up in purgatory. Well, Problem is, if Jesus comes for his bride on the eighth day and they all have to go to purgatory, <laughs> he's he's a lonely groom. Yeah. So Jesus wants us to be his bride, to take to heaven right then, right there. And so he chose Divine Mercy Sunday as the other way to do that. Because 
On Divine Mercy Sunday, not only are we forgiven of all our sins through confession, we're forgiven of all the punishment that we may be owed due to sin. God says it's all gone. Now, that doesn't mean that you just go back to a sinful life. No, you got to have desire to clean up. You got to have desire. But when Jesus comes and finds us not spotless, he wants to give us a chance to be spotless. And yeah, there's other things we could do like plenary indulgences and other things that can relieve punishment. But those are not easy. It's not easy to get a, a mm -hmm. you know, a plenary indulgence because we, um, we're broken. We have attachment to sin, which is one of the conditions. You can have no attachment to sin. But on Divine Mercy Sunday, all of that is wiped away. Promised. What do we do? Jesus. We just go to Mass or we go to yes. confession and to In Mass? Paragraph, paragraph 699 of the diary says the soul that has been to confession. On Divine Mercy. Now that could doesn't have to be on that Sunday. That could be the before, the week before. St. Faustina went to Saturday before. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing is get to confession. The second is you receive Holy Communion. And so you're getting cleansed and then you're being fed. The two things we most try to do to help the homeless, cleanse them, feed them. Mm -hmm. And we are broken. We are in need. And God cleanses us in confession, feeds us in Holy Communion. And so together we are spotless because the promise in 699 of the diary is a soul that has been to confession and receives Holy Communion. On that day, Divine Mercy Sunday, will be completely forgiven of all sins and punishment. So guess what? When you meet the Lord on the eighth day going into eternity, you're spotless. Hmm. You're spotless. That's the whole reason God created this day. So that they could have an incentive to just simply go back to the sacraments. Confession and Holy Communion. It's really fascinating. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. And that is the good news. So I think that's a perfect place to stop. Is there anything else that I did not ask that you wish I had or you would like the listeners? Well, to know? just the fact that, you know, divine mercy, Jesus told St. Faustina is God's last hope of salvation. He said that unless you pass through the doors of his mercy, you must pass through the doors of his justice. And there is... No way I'm making it through the doors of justice. Um, I need the doors of mercy. And so please, we beg everybody, um, come receive God's mercy. And if you want to learn more about this, please join us. Um, you know, you can visit us at thedivinemercy.org. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't cost anything and doesn't take but a few minutes, but become a Marian helper and you can receive all the graces of of our masses, prayers and penances. And, and you don't have to donate anything. It doesn't cost anything, but it allows you to pray for, or we then pray for you and then you pray for us. And that's how the power of prayer and the power of intercession, that's how we help each other. That's perfect. Uh, Father Chris, thank you so much for talking with me today and God for being bless part you guys. of part of the podcast. Would you like to close in a prayer or a, or a blessing for our listeners? Absolutely. Heavenly Father, we ask you send the Holy Spirit 
down upon all those listening here, opening their hearts to receive the grace of God's divine mercy through the intercession of St. Faustina, Mary, and all the saints, through the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. May Almighty God bless all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, and God bless you guys. Thank you so much. That's a great, a great delight to talk with you, and thank you again. Thank you. Hopefully and again in the future. God bless you. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you, and hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris Odinitz and Father Chris Aller recorded this conversation, episode 61, on Tuesday, June 27, 2023. It was the feast day of St. Cyril of Alexandria, the stormy archbishop who, at the Council of Ephesus in 431, defeated that Nestorian heresy and established that Jesus was indeed both fully God and fully man, and one person, instead of God wearing a human disguise, and that Mary was therefore God-bearer. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a stained glass window at Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. Please email me with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes at almostgoodcatholic at gmail.com. I answer every email. And thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds God and angels sing.